God's people said, it's good to be with you in the house of our Lord. I'm excited to walk with you through some very necessary questions for moving forward in our faith. We concluded an 11-week study in the Gospel of Mark where we were reminded again and again of the importance of moving forward in our faith. And I love that the whole of Scripture, including the Gospels, demonstrate the life of Jesus so clearly that our focus most assuredly rests upon Him. If one opens the Bible and doesn't see ultimately the message of Christ, then likely that one has not looked deeply in the truths of God. I'm grateful that all throughout the Scripture, all things point to Jesus because there is no other name. Amen? And we're called to move forward in our faith. And there are some questions that I think are so vital, particularly as we reflect on our our study in the Gospel of Mark where all things reminded us to move forward. And so just to reflect on this, I'd like to share with you several passages of Scripture that will help us to uh, engage what I consider to be some vital questions about our faith uh, moving forward. The landscape gardener looked surprised. And he said, ma'am, will, will you say that again? <laughs> the lady of the house waved her hand to include the several acres of woods that was around her house that she had hired him to landscape. And she said, I would like to have a picture of all of it. Fish pond, rose garden, all things. Could you sketch this out from me? And then could you build what we sketch? The man said, this is going to be very difficult. This is a professional landscaper. He said, it will be very difficult for me to sketch what you desire as the finished product. So she pulled out a Home and Gardens magazine article and said, then then do this. The landscaper wisely and almost philosophically said, that is impossible for us to have that as a goal. Scratching her head, she thought she had hired the wrong person. And then the professional landscaper began to elaborate. You see, ma'am, I can show you a pattern or you can show me a pattern. But you need to understand that all the things that have been planted and continue to be planted will always be growing. They'll be cultivating. They'll be replanting. They'll be trimming. Who knows what the finished product will look like? The author who recounts this story, a beloved author of women's ministry, said, I had no idea I hired a landscaper and a philosopher, but he taught me that we cannot limit what is expected to grow. So I know that you and I, much like the landscaper's pattern or the homing garden's picture, have an idea of what a grown, mature Christian life may look like. We, we might even have ideas of what a healthy church looks like in the economy of God's kingdom. But let me assure you, regardless of how we put our own frames around what we would call healthy and growing, uh, it's hard to establish what the final picture would be when something is always intending to grow and mature. Now, I'd like to move from the vast landscape of, of, of global Christian faith and 
the vast landscape of our church. And I'd like to focus on you. Your life as a spiritual garden spot of the work of the Holy Spirit because your faith rests in Jesus Christ. How is it that you're growing? How is it that you're moving forward in your faith? Now, I know it's very tempting to say, Ken, I'm fine. Preach to those around me. They really could use this. I know that's tempting. But, but I ask you to allow the Holy Spirit, regardless of how well you think you're doing, uh, to allow the Holy Spirit to truly focus on where you are in response to the no other name than Jesus. How is your faith moving forward? So I'd like to share with you uh, significant questions for the next two weeks, which will help us both individually and corporately to discern how we are moving forward in our faith. Now, God has laid several verses on my heart that I share with you today. I love moving verse by verse, which is what we've done all through the Gospel of Mark. But here we have some significant verses that require our attention so that we can better address these necessary questions for moving forward in our faith. Are you ready for these questions? Okay, you don't seem too optimistic, but trust me. The questions will be a bit uh, uncomfortable, but nonetheless necessary for our growing Again, you're that garden that God has created. You're the, the rich soul into which his seed has been sown week after week after week. But we need to pause and ask some significant questions about our own faith moving forward. Question number one, are you living in the truth of your forgiveness or have you been deceived concerning sin? Now what I love about the Gospel of Mark and all the other Gospels would be this Intent way that Jesus always drew individuals to the condition of their soul. Now, he most certainly addressed the physical. And he most certainly addressed the social. And he most certainly addressed the thoughts of man. But he brought all things to the condition of the soul. And as I study God's precious word, particularly Psalm 32, we must start in this series of questions at the core concerning the life of faith of one who follows Jesus, concerning the reality of forgiveness of sin. Are you living in the truth of forgiveness? Or have you been deceived concerning sin? Listen to Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression... Singular for a purpose in the Hebrew poetic language. How blessed is the man whose transgression. Singular. Likely, David was recounting more than one transgression. Agreed? Yet he gave the singular to emphasize the whole of the thought and the reality of transgression. How blessed is he? Let's pause here. Psalm 31 becomes subtitled, A Maskil. Do you see that in your copy of the Word of God? Now this is a unique word. Bible scholarship has debated this word for quite some time. The most, the most expedient expression I can give you today that would hit to the core of this word would be that of contemplation as well as that of the impartation of wisdom. So the idea of a maskil can actually reference something that's contemplative, but intended 
for thought and for growth, for teaching. So this celebration psalm, wherein David was in the first seat as the worship leader, was intended musically to bring about some contemplation as well as consideration for the truth of the content contained here. So yes, let's be contemplative. Let's have contemplation over God's truth, but let's also open our hearts to consider what we need to grow and to learn from. This becomes, I believe, the emphasis of the masculine of this musical psalm. The, the word masculine obviously is a musical expression, but again, to point to the content, not to the rhythm of what has become declared in this psalm. So David said, how blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven. Verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, meaning to, to lay upon the one guilty their own iniquity. So this becomes an amazing moment of celebration in the heart of the psalmist, in the movement of the psaltery. Here, the psalmist cries out, we are blessed to have our sins forgiven. Yes, thank you for that amen, because this should be celebrated. Our sins are forgiven. Now we mature on from that foundational truth. But notice how the psalm would not allow Israel to move past, but to build upon this amazing truth, sin forgiven. Have you lost the joy of the forgiveness of sin where your service to Jesus builds upon obligation, duty, and the routine of expectation of man as opposed to the joy that should motivate us to serve Jesus because we've been forgiven. Have you become so inundated with church life that likely your heart has forgotten when God calls you to reach out to those who are not yet in the fold? Perhaps your heart has forgotten. I once too was lost in an aimless sinner. Destined for a Christless hell. And the grace of God broke through. Can we pause and say, God, thank you for the forgiveness of sin. So notice uh, two emphatic presentations of Psalm 31. And this will bring us to the question at hand. Now these, these emphases, these proclamations, uh, focus upon this theme of forgiveness. In the heart of a masculine psalm for contemplation as well as for teaching. First, notice the reality of forgiveness. And then second, notice the reality of deceit concerning sin. These, these are very significant teaching points from Psalm 31. Notice the reality of forgiveness. And then second, notice the reality of deceit. Concerning sin. Well, first, the reality of forgiveness is portrayed beautifully by showing the depth of our forgiveness. So if you're noting this reality of our forgiveness, there are some subpoints here that shows the depth of our forgiveness. Would you like to see the depth to be reminded? Here they are. There are three expressions for how we dishonor God in our lives. There are three expressions of our fallenness from which Christ has redeemed us. The first would be, in verse 1, transgression. From the Hebrew, this term actually means a breaking from God. 
in, in, the, in the Greek New Testament, this could be noted as the anomena, the against the law, seeing what God has prescribed and choosing another way. Transgression does not come out of spiritual ignorance. The very idea of transgression notices the law of God and decides, I choose another path. And so that transgression, the psalmist David recounted, through God's grace and mercy, has been forgiven. Do you recall those days in your life where you knew God ordered your steps to a certain task and you fought that task? Do you remember? Hey, I need you to go forgive this person. No way, God. There's no way I'm opening that door. No, I, I need you to go. Okay, I'll, I'll pray about it. No, that's not what I told you. I need you to go. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll see when you put me in front of them. Oh, we're going to play that game. Okay, here we go. Now I'm relaying to you types of conversations I've had with God. Perhaps you can see these all too familiar in your own history. And so, oh, may we, may we thank God that in the stubbornness of our hearts, when we transgress His law and His way, can we thank God that through Jesus He will lift that transgression? Are you celebrating the reality of forgiveness yet? Let's go a little deeper. That's one step into the depth of our forgiveness. But look at the second step. How blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Secondly, whose sin is covered. Oh my goodness, could we discuss this phrase uh, for, for at length and still not plummet the depth of this seemingly very simple phrase. Whose sin is covered. Well, the word sin here is totally different from transgression. We lump all these words together. To use them interchangeably, not so in the Hebrew text. Transgression references a breaking from God's sin, a completely different word in the Hebrew poetry, references a missing of the rightness of God, similar to the Greek expression of sin in the New Testament where we understand the idea of missing the mark. Here, sin relates to the idea of missing the rightness of God. Now, where transgression would be blatant, God, I see your law, I'm doing the opposite. Sin would be likely in that category, but also in the category of, of not being concerned about the rightness of God. Going one's own way and not feeling that convicted that one has gone, gone one's own way because one has learned to justify one's own way. Have I said one enough? <laughs> and so the psalmist said, you're blessed because you're not just your transgressions, you know what they are, but your, your sins when you have not gone the way of God's rightness. God said, I'll, I'll forgive that too. Would you like to go a little deeper? The next verse. Blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute iniquity. Wow. This word, iniquity, references that which is deplorable, that which is uh, disposed to the things of the world, that which is in direct contradistinction, contradiction, uh, contradistinction to the holiness of God. And so this becomes the announcement of your 
forgiveness. Church, do you hear the Word of God lavishing the reminder upon your soul of how God has forgiven you? He has forgiven your transgression, your sin, and your iniquity, that which is in direct contradistinction to the holiness of God. But notice this, the psalmist is not allowing the words to fall upon the hearts of the worshipers that we might remember our transgressions, sins, and iniquities and therefore feel fresh guilt. No, because the psalmist said, because you have been forgiven and because in you there is no spirit of deceit. We've looked at the reality of forgiveness with these three expressions of walking contrary to God. And we see these words, transgressions, uh, sin, and iniquity. That's the reality of our forgiveness. God is forgiven through Christ our Lord. You remember another psalm declares as far as the east is from the west. Has God forgiven our sins from us? Not because we've come up with some right formula to administer our works that they might please God, but because of what God has done in Jesus, we're forgiven. So are you living in the truth of your forgiveness? Or have you been deceived concerning sin? How can we become deceived? Well, notice that the psalmist, and we'll, we'll, we've heard the other verses read, but we're going to uh, just reference the first five verses and move on to the next question. But notice Notice that the psalmist said, Blessed is the man whose, whose iniquities, transgressions, sins are forgiven and, meaning together, not separate, one or the other, and in whom there is no deceit. Well, what herein defines deceit concerning sin, iniquities, and transgressions? Well, the deceit that one may think he or she has not sinned, transgressed, or has had iniquity. The deceit would be to become blind to sins that might be present in our lives at the moment. This is tough. I told you we were going to begin with an easy question, but perhaps not so easy. This is tough that we could become deceived about our own transgressions, iniquities and sins that we might even have in our lives right now that we've not become aware of. And this is why... David cried out many times in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 19, God, forgive me of my presumptuous sins, even those sins that I presume I do not have. And so let's be careful that we are living in the truth of the depth of our forgiveness by not giving in to the deceit concerning sin, which actually translates to justifying or overlooking when we have failed God. Well, I'm so grateful I've not failed God. I've been obedient to everything he's asked. So would be the defense of the average Christian. But no, David and his words here are penetrating the soul. Because from within the soul is where iniquities, transgressions, and sins are born. So are there things that we've harbored that would be in the category of transgressions, iniquities, or sins that we have to say, God, I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. I write myself before you now in response to the condition of my soul. Let's make certain that we are not deceived by sin. And just to give you some reminders from the Scriptures on how we are not deceived or stand against the deception of sin, uh, let me just share these with you. You can write these 
uh, scripture references down if you desire. First, be reminded that Satan always tempts us to sin. I know that's uh, Bible Truth 101. But often we forget that his ultimate tactic, in whatever way that we stand vulnerable in the First Peter 5 eight scenario of the roaring lion circling about to devour us, in whatever way we stand vulnerable, that point becomes the point wherein Satan's chief goal is that we would sin, leading to destruction. And if your faith is in Jesus, He is not giving up on you completely. He wants to destroy your witness and my witness. And so, we, we need to be reminded and not deceived that Satan does tempt us to sin. I simply want to clear this up for the, for the church. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we are told that the God of this world the devil himself, blinds the eyes spiritually of unbelievers. We know this, right? We were blind ourselves before God broke through and we placed our faith in Jesus. But also the Scripture gives clear evidence that you and I can be just as blind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the Apostle Paul spoke into that church who had become deceived and blind in their spiritual journey. And Paul said, be careful that you do not become like Eve when she gave in to the temptations of the evil one. It was Paul himself under the hand of the Holy Spirit that compared the Corinthian church to Eve's failure in the garden. And the words were, be careful that you not become like her. So, yes, first, Satan is always about to tempt us. Another truth Satan is always about robbing your ears from the Word of God. That's what he desires to do. If you were to read the Gospel of Mark, as we've done, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, you'll see, and even in verse 16, you'll see the uh, analogous expression from our Lord of how seed fell on the side of the road and, and it didn't penetrate and the birds came and ate. When Jesus explained this, Jesus said, Just as the devil will come when you hear the Word of God and He will take the truth from you. So Satan would cause you to sin. Satan also would desire that you do nothing with God's truth. Nothing. You hear it. We, we high-five the Holy Spirit and say, man, that was great. But if we do nothing with the truth, then we've given in to Satan's chief tactics to take the truth from us. Where we hear the truth and walk away, I hope people heard that today without first saying, God, where am I in this? Where have I failed you? And so let's be very careful that we're open to the deceptions that the enemy can bring about sin. And the third and final truth here before we move on to the second question. We can't be deceived about sin. Satan will tempt us to sin. Satan will rob us from God's truth that protects us from walking in darkness and keeps us on the path of life. But Satan is is a betrayer. Satan himself is a betrayer. Revelation chapter, chapter 12, verse 10, describes Satan as the deceiver to betray you. And so he will tempt you to sin, he will take the word of God from you, and his ultimate goal is to deceive you into thinking that your thoughts and inclinations are correct because you can easily find them justified. But if there's no word of God in your life to which they should be tested... And if sin reigns, because you're uh, unfamiliar with how Satan has brought sin into your life, then 
your understanding of what God has said becomes misaligned and we begin to hear what we think is right for us. But it's actually the enemy deceiving us. So Paul's here to say, are you living in the truth of your forgiveness? Because church family, have we been forgiven or what? Transgressions, sins, iniquity. Are you living in the reality of that or do you think that there's a slight possibility that you've been deceived at some point concerning sin? Several years ago, I may have shared this story with you. I love this story. New York Times in, in 2011 released the story of Robert Salzman. Robert Salzman at age 51 was released from prison. He had been arrested with, 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 with heavy, heavy uh, charges and placed in prison from the time he was a young teenager to the age 51 he was released he was free he had paid his due he was on the subway one day and there was a producer by the name of Ernesto Green who was on the subway in New York City and was filming a movie in an abandoned penitentiary on Long Island well the the producer saw Salzman, his rough exterior, and thought he would be great to cast. And so the, the producer stopped him, interviewed Salzman, found out his history, and said, I need you to play a, 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 a convict in this movie. You, you will have the presentation correct. So this was Salzman's break because he couldn't find income in any means, regardless of how hard he tried. So here was his break. So he was invited by the producer on the set. So he's, he's on location filming in this abandoned uh, prison, this movie that the producer thought he'd be perfect for. Well, between scenes, uh, actors were, were given a chance to rest. And so Salzman just retreated to one of the makeshift cells where he laid down and, and rested. Salzman writes, when I woke up, for brief moments, I had forgotten that I had been freed. And I panicked. And I began crying out. I desire my freedom. And then he came to himself and realized that he is free. I fear sometimes many of us have the Robert Salzman syndrome where we, we know we're free. We know we've been forgiven. But the enemy we feel has come in and, and polluted and has misdirected our hearts. And we cry out a desire to be free. Well, we are free. Which is why when we reflect on Jesus, we can, we can know that we've been forgiven. We can move forward in our faith with the joy of forgiveness. So are you living in the reality of forgiveness or have you been deceived concerning sin? Now, I'd like to join you uh, with a second question. May we turn from the Old Testament over to the New Testament and may we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, we, we leave Psalm 32, wherein that great psalm has reminded us of how we've been forgiven. Now, I build upon something from Psalm 32 to transition us to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And what we built upon was that unique phrase in Psalm 32, your sins are covered. Do you know the term covered there actually comes from a word that described how the priest, through incense, on the altar of the Holy of Holies. And the incense was burned. And the smoke filled the Holy of Holies. To, to symbolize that, that the sins of Israel could no longer be seen. They were concealed. 
because of the burnt offering that created the smoke that caused the sin to be covered. And the psalmist said our sins are covered because of that sacrifice. So as we move into 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'd like for you to see a little clearly, a little more vividly for your own life, this fragrant offering that created the smoke that filled the Holy of Holies, that, that symbolically concealed and covered sin so that those sins would be removed and Israel stands before God perfectly forgiven. Now we know from the Old Testament to the New, Jesus, our ultimate sacrifice, has already made the way for us. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there is a reference to that same offering, a fragrance from the offering a fragrance which wafts up in the sacrifice, reflecting in the Old Testament ceremony, a fragrance of the offering being acceptable. Do you know who 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 names as the fragrance of that offering? Do you know? Do you know? You! You! May I read this? 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. And you, and I love the emphasis, becomes so strong for you and for me. For we, for you are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. When Paul used the first person plural, he did this much in his writings to indicate the respective we. Paul was not here saying we, meaning the apostles, or we, meaning my missionary team. Paul was actually indicating we. He's writing into that wayward church, Corinth, to establish against the Corinthian opponents who were attempting to lead the church astray, those opponents were negating Paul's authority as an apostle, negating the gospel, and Paul said, need I remind you, you, we are a fragrance of Christ. There are three references here. I give these to you quickly, but first we go to question two. Question number two. Do you understand your significance to God? Or have you bought into the lie that your life matters little? Do you understand your significance to God? Or have you bought into the lie that your life matters little? I know sometimes it becomes easy to feel that we're just a person in the pew or a number on the church membership data system or just a name attached to a function. My, my name is attached to a function, or at least years ago, instead of being called Pastor Ken, I was called Preacher Ken from children because I'm the guy that preaches. My name was not disconnected from preaching. In fact, one little boy came up to me and said, I know you, you're the guy that lives at our church. And I said, yes. And my wife chimed in, more than you know, young man. He lives there more than you know. We at times uh, become cultivated in relationships based on what we do. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. But spiritually... Please understand that you are more than just a number in the data system or a fulfillment of the title in that position you volunteered. 
You're more than just church member. You understand this, right? You're a child of God. And, and even more than that demonstration in our ears that seems static, okay, God saved me through Jesus, I'm His child. No, you are a fragrance. Church, I'm telling you, this is, this is life changing. You're a fragrance. Let me share with you a bit about this fragrance with three references. The first reference, as we've already alluded would point to the sacrificial system where the priest would lay the incense and the incense would become crushed and burned, wafting a fragrance acceptable to God. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, we are that fragrance. Not because of the we, but because of that which has been crushed and burned. Because of Christ Himself. We are the fragrance of Christ, do you see this, to God. Who received the wafting of the fragrance? The priest? No. Israel? No. God. And here Paul said, we become the fragrance of Christ. We are the fragrance of the work of Jesus in our lives to God. So we are the fragrance of what has been broken. Christ died for us rose again to achieve for us a rightness with God and a righteousness not of our own, but what belongs to God. And we are now the fragrance of that offering to God. And through Jesus, God sees your life as so spiritually significant that He would never have you to buy into the lie that your life spiritually doesn't matter much. Because we're a fragrance based on what Jesus has done. So as I follow Jesus and surrender my heart to Him, my life becomes a wafting fragrance to God. But when I give in to that sin or that iniquity or that transgression and I allow sin to rule me, I am no longer a fragrance to God. I'm a stench. But because we've been forgiven and the Gospel has had the full effect of of the truth that has brought our awareness to salvation. We are a fragrance. So the spiritual metaphor from the analogy of of, of the Hebrew sacrificial system would be that we're a fragrance of what has been broken. Meaning Christ went to the cross for us. And we were broken by sin. But He redeemed us. And so in Christ we become a fragrance acceptable to God. Another imagery here would, would be that Paul borrowed from the Gentile culture fragrances that were burned to pagan gods. And most in this culture, Paul here is speaking in large portion to Gentiles, and Paul would, would say, we're a fragrance to God, not because of some practice in pagan ceremonies. No, we are a fragrance to God because of Jesus. The third reference would be in the Roman culture itself. When a Roman emperor would would earn victory, he would parade through and there would be celebration and incense burning out of vessels. And then those that were held captive, the enemies, were brought in as as a display. And the fragrance to the Roman citizens was victory. To those who denied Rome, the fragrance was death. Which is why Paul said, it is Jesus that has given us a fragrance to God. So because of those who know Jesus, 
our life becomes a fragrance of life to those who reject the gospel and reject God. Our lives become a fragrance that would point them to death, point them to their own denial of the truth of God. But the beauty comes from each of these references very clearly. You're a fragrance to God, acceptable to Him. I don't know if you know the name Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's a Christian artist. He went through a very difficult time in his life when a child was lost. And he uh, cultivated the place behind his house, uh, deep in the woods, where he would go and stack rocks and just have a time of prayer and recovery and find himself alone before the Lord. He wrote this little excerpt that I love. I had stacked some rocks out in this little place in the woods, a place where I had meant many times to pray desperate for God to do something, to show up, to have some type of breakthrough in my grief, in my life. As I was praying, I remembered, I love this, smelling cedar so strong that it distracted me from my prayer. I looked around, and I could see that this little cedar tree had been uh, snapped in half as I stepped on the path to pray. That was where the smell was coming from, the broken cedar. And this became a tangible sign of grace as I have come to understand it. There are those events in my life which seem to render me broken, but from that brokenness, God has created a fragrance unto himself. And so know this, church, that even though times can become difficult and uncertain, and we feel like that little cedar that some event has snapped us in half, allow your heart to truly seek after the Christ and to build upon your calling to, to demonstrate the gospel in word and in deed. And when this happens, you, you become, even in that brokenness, a fragrance to God and a fragrance that others will recognize. It was interesting that Paul spoke of fragrance as he was defending his own apostolic duties of the gospel and that of the church. So when you feel weary as if your service to Jesus matters little, remember that as your heart surrenders to Jesus, you're a fragrance. Don't panic. Don't try to fix things yourself. You follow the heart of Jesus and let your life become a fragrance for others to be drawn to the gospel. Amen? Do you understand? your significance to God? Or have you bought into the lie that your, your life matters little? I take you to the third and final question. This takes us to Ephesians 3.20. What a great way to end because question three represents a benediction. And question three becomes our benediction today. This becomes a beautiful statement. Ephesians chapter 3 Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. I just want to walk you through this benediction with the what, the how, and the why. The what. He will do far more beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. The how through His power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Why? 
for the glory of Christ in the church. I love this benediction because the inclusion would be in the church, in the people of God. So question three, is your faith strengthened by what God can do or stifled by what you cannot? We, we, we have looked at our sin. Yes, we're forgiven. We have looked at our significance to God. Yes, a fragrance. But in conclusion, based on the truths of all that we've discovered, as we continue to see our faith moved forward as we reflect on Jesus, is your faith strengthened by what God can do or stifled by what you cannot? These verses fell right in the midst of a conversation Paul had with the church concerning Gentiles and how the great mystery is that Gentiles could come to know our Lord. Verse 6 of chapter 3, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. You see, the Gentiles saw their own lives based upon how the Jews treated them as, as a great barrier to know the love of God and the forgiveness through Jesus. But God overcame that. This was Paul's teaching. Hey, remember, through the cross, God has overcome this. There's nothing impossible for him. And he will do amazingly more than you could ever ask or imagine. Is your faith strengthened by that? You know he's forgiven you. You know he's made you useful. Question one and two. Is your faith strengthened by what he can do and what he has done? Is your faith strengthened? Or do you become stifled at what you can't do? God, uh, I, I don't know that I can do what you've called me. God, I don't know how we're going to move through this. God, I don't see any hope. No, no, no. You've already admitted you are forgiven. He's made you a fragrance. How could He who forgave this, making this a fragrance, not do immeasurably more so that my faith soars and doesn't become stifled by what I cannot do on my own? I'll never forget the first time I felt called to preach. Never forget it. Because I told God, I don't think so. <laughs> Let me get back with you. Absolutely not. God began to show me this great truth. All of my life, God has shown me this truth. Even at the ripe age of 55, when I see a door in front of me that I feel is extremely unfamiliar, God will say, why would I stop now? Church, he's saying the same to you. Individual, he's saying the same to you. Can I just help you through this what, how, and why? The what is that he will do immeasurably more. Do you see that in verse 20? The phrase immeasurably more is only used about three times in the Greek of the New Testament. It indicates far beyond human thought. That would be the literal. Far beyond what you can imagine. He will do far more. He saves you. He's made you his fragrance. Through Jesus and only through Jesus. And he will do more. Do you believe this? He hasn't concluded your narrative. He will do more. Nor has he concluded mine. He will do much more. That's the what. The how through the power that is at work within you. Can you begin today to recommit to having your expectations of God to be based upon what he can do and not upon what you can do? It was William Carey who said, Attempt great things for God, 
but expect great things from God. Let's not expect God to do only that which we can do, for he would never gain any glory from this. Let's expect God to do in us only what he can do. And that expectation shows you a faith that is strong and is soaring. It was author Kevin Myers who once wrote, God does not loan you his power to fulfill your purpose. He gives you himself so that you will fulfill his purpose. I need to say this again. God does not loan you his power so that you can fulfill your purpose. He gives you himself so that you will fulfill his purpose. He will do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. For his glory, that's the why. The what? Immeasurably more. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Why? For the glory of God in the church forever. Is your faith strengthened by what he can do? I pray it grows daily in the strength of what God can do and what he has done and what he will continue to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your Holy Scripture read over your people. I thank you for the worship that has drawn us into your presence. And God, I thank you for this assembly of precious saints and friends that form a beautiful faith community. And Father, we need these questions probing our hearts not to distract us or to discourage us, but to ignite a fire within us to truly desire that our faith would move forward, not become complacent or atrophied or falling back. Oh, Father, may our faith move forward as you continue to strengthen our steps. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for these probing questions that move us forward through your scripture, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said... Thank you.